Welcome to the Tamarin Learning Podcast, where host Dr. Kirby Ross-Plock speaks with experts on many topics relevant in the ultra-high net worth family wealth management space. Kirby is author of several books, including The Complete Family Office Handbook, and shares her expertise consulting with families and family offices. Kirby is also the founder of Tamarind Learning, an online wealth education platform that develops practical, foundational learning programs for beneficiaries to help them prepare for responsible stewardship of wealth. In this episode of the Tamarind Learning Podcast, I welcome leading attorneys from Withers Worldwide, Ivan Sachs and Bill Cambus, and their partner and U.S. Commercial Practice Group leader, David Gwynn. We discuss family office setup, structure, and compliance. Welcome to the Tamron Learning Podcast. I'm your host, Kirby Rosbach. I'm thrilled to have leading authors from the second edition of the Complete Family Office Handbook joining me today. These are the top attorneys from Withers Worldwide, and they were contributors to the first book edition, and now they're contributing once again to the second edition. So we get to hear more insights around the two chapters that they co-authored, the first chapter by Ivan Sachs and Bill Cambus on the family office setup and structure, is chapter number five. And then the second chapter we're gonna hear more about is chapter seven, legal and compliance, authored by David Gwynn. And you can hear that they are still in the thick of Manhattan, so we're getting a little little extra siren to go with the, the podcast today. So welcome, gentlemen, so glad to have you here today and so excited to learn about what is new. What is new with family office setup and structure and why should our readers care? Ivan, any thoughts? Well, I mean, certainly one thing that we've we've all seen is there's just an explosion in the in the uh, you know uh, growth of family office and the interest in family office, both by uh, families and intermediaries in the in that advisory circle, but also by um, the investment market. And so there's a lot of different audiences now that are interested in trying to learn and increase their sophistication about, you know, what is family office, how does it operate, and, and what are the different legal and, and uh, compliance tensions that it operates under. So I think the, the audience for this continues to explode, the sophistication certainly in the United States um, uh, with respect to, you know, the desire to understand and professionalize uh, the advisory space in that. So we're very happy to, you know, have been a part of that uh, with you to, to try to increase the, the learning there. And Bill, tell us some more of the key takeaways or things that um, you, you updated and emphasized in, in this second edition, chapter five. Sure. Well, what we tried to do was stay within the same paradigm of the original chapter, but expand it for those developments that I've been rightly mentioned. Um, that increased sophistication, I think, came on the heels of real growth in the number of families um, and the places that those families came from that had an interest in family office, as well as the subject matter that family offices are tasked with uh, being responsible for. So what we did was take that same framework because the general questions haven't changed. Is a family office appropriate for me? What's the right type of entity? What are the risks involved? Who should pay for this? Those, those questions didn't change, but what we did learn is how different families across the world 
and in the United States have approached those questions and through developments in case law and regulatory law here in the United States, um, we've learned about ways of refining that approach for greater stability, risk management, and also greater participation by the participants who need to participate in the family office or benefit from it. That's, that's really helpful. And I'm just curious, um, I mean, Ivan, maybe you can tell us a little bit more, but in your experience with families and setting up family offices, um, having this kind of roadmap and a chapter to help give them ideas of how to pursue their goals, it must make it easier maybe as their counselor in figuring out, okay, but let's tailor this. What does this really look like? Because obviously this book chapter is helpful, but it's not going to tell you how to do it necessarily. You have to customize and work with counsel like yourself. Oh, I'm, I'm going to put you back on. And automatically muted there. I hope it's not an editorial comment. Um, <laughs> uh, so uh, now I'm back. Uh, now that I think that's that's right. It is uh, quintessentially a bespoke exercise because every family is different. And the place where they, you know, enter the um, phase of creating a family office always has unique uh, aspects in terms of the interrelation of, you know, their goals, where they are as a family, uh, what their investment pools and, and other uh, interests are. At the same time, in the expert's mind, uh, there are a number of, you know, uh, classical areas of consideration that always come into account in terms of form of structure, uh, tax-driven issues. And as Bill alluded to in the last few years, and, and it's probably a feature of, of, of all of the uh, increased popularity of family office, we've had some very interesting case law development. Um, and that coupled with the change of law uh, under uh, the tax reform that was adopted uh, on January 1, 2017, has certainly created some interesting, you know, dynamics that are, you know, to uh, a subject of repeated advice to every family that is uh, considering family offices or have reached uh, a period, you know, a stage of maturity of their family office where we can try to refine that efficiency. So we talk a lot about form uh, in the chapter. Uh, the choice of entity between LLCs, partnerships, pass-through vehicles, the difference between a family office and the investment entities that a family office uh, will often run, uh, supervise, or engage with in terms of investment structures, and really understanding that, you know, when we say family office, that is sometimes a rubric for uh, a complex of interrelated entities that bring out efficiencies, bring out, you know, strategic uh, goals. So uh, we do go through um, go through that and, and and try to discuss it in a uh, a way that you know relates to basic questions, relates to anecdotes and examples and stuff, so that uh, you know there are anchors for for understanding. And Ivan, you mentioned um, some of the case law that's come up, you know, since we last wrote the book. I mean, I'm just wondering, Bill, maybe you can comment on how and how much has it really materially changed some of the planning considerations or perhaps sort of funneled people's interest to try to emulate um, how that case law worked out or didn't work out? I don't know if you want to comment. Sure. Um, case law is always instructive and this uh, was no different. Uh, what it did is, is, is those two things. It helped 
solidify planning that we've been doing for decades in some cases already. Um, the professionalism that we were embedding and insisting on for our clients was reinforced when we got the lender management LLC versus commissioner case, a commissioner versus lender management LLC, um, which was a family office. And it showed how important that professionalism is um, and how one structure might work for a given family. Um, we also had other cases uh, that were set up that worked through the courts and um, didn't always result in decisions, but where we saw there was greater challenge. And so that case combined with historic cases on the active trader business rules um, were really instructive and helped focus the discussion because as you said at the second part of your, your question, there was greater interest and perhaps it was the tax changes that occurred with the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. Um, perhaps it was the Lender Management LLC case. Um, perhaps it was the growing sophistication of families over the last few years, but the questions just kept coming up and the combination of the case law, the sophistication that we we're able to embed in the structures, the learning that we have from private equity, venture capital, and corporate holding company structures all apply in this context. The families were asking questions. We were being uh, calling on sort of great resources out in the marketplace to refine this practice area. Now I want to shift it over to David and hear more about your chapter. You uh, you became the sole author this this go round of of chapter seven on compliance and a tremendous amount of work um, goes into the legal compliancing aspects of a family office. Now, it's not always the favorite topic to talk about compliance, but tell us what you think are some of the key takeaways writing this revised chapter, what family offices are doing, the new issues they're confronting, and how compliance is you know, going to the next level. Sure. So I guess there's um, four themes I would talk about. One, the, the rules themselves really haven't changed much. So the underlying rules are, are, are pretty much the same now as they were when we wrote the original chapter. Uh, but there's sort of four themes I want to hit on. One is that the the means that we are adopting to address the rule do continue to evolve. Um, so you know the family office rule was pretty much brand new when we when we wrote the chapter the first time around. So there wasn't a whole lot of guidance and there wasn't a whole lot of um, you know practitioners did not spend a whole lot of time coming up with their own strategies. So our strategies continue to evolve. Um, so we're, there's new ways of complying with the rule that we've adopted that give a little bit more flexibility to families. Uh, so that's number one. Number two is the adoption of the family office rule is now spilling into other compliance areas. So for example, um, many family offices have to file the institutional investment manager reports. One of the things you can do there is request confidential treatment. The technical rule on confidential treatment requests says that the filing would have to identify holdings of a natural person, a trust, or an estate. We've been able to use the SEC's adoption of the family office rule and expand that and say, look, if, if the filing would identify the holdings of a group of people or a group of estates that are identifiable as a family, you ought to afford that expanded group confidential treatment. We've been successful in getting the SEC to do that. Um, number three is um, pretty much what it's always been, you know, the 
even if you are a family office that qualifies for the family office rule, understanding what your other compliance obligations are. As I like to say, the SEC often looks at a family office as it would any other commercial enterprise, um, and they want the rules to apply to the family office the way they would apply it to a commercial enterprise, because of course, what they're worried about is creating loopholes. We don't want to create loopholes um, that people can drive through. So um, coming up with specific strategies to deal with those in the context of a family office is important. You, you do need to comply with the rules, but there are special things about family offices and special techniques we want to adopt to get the family offices into compliance. And then the last thing I would say is we're, we're increasingly applying the family office rule to non-US structures. Mm. Um, so uh, in, in, for a couple of reasons, one, we have you know US families that have non-US um, components to their overall structure. Um, and we have seen a, a fairly sizable increase in non-US family offices establishing bridgeheads in the US and now therefore having to worry about compliance with US rules. And so applying these rules to non-US structures has been an interesting uh, endeavor. Thank you for the overview. I mean, there, there seems to be a lot um, of increased interest due to the scrutiny at times that families, particularly those that are financial families that might have multiple entities, um, I know there was a, a recent um, individual that you connected with on on sort of balancing how do you manage fund structures and um, you know broker dealer or an RIA and still retain being a family office um, and how to sort of separate the compliance needs of different entities that are sometimes um, bring more visibility right uh, to yep. the family office. We've been pretty pretty successful in, in creating sort of side-by-side -side regulated and non-regulated entities. So family offices um, who have a traditional family office, uh, but they have some aspect of their business that, that requires registration. And we have a, a pretty tried and true sort of side-by-side -side structure that was actually made it through SEC exams. So we're comfortable that the SEC would, would respect the structures. So um, you, you can get around those things to some extent with careful planning. Yeah, Bill, did you want to add something? I did, and I apologize for the brief interruption there, but I, I did because David mentioned a couple things that are directly applicable on the tax side as well. Um, and it's just to, to, to illustrate that while David was focusing on the SEC regulations and registration requirements and compliance, there is a good overlap um, and parallel on the tax side, which is that the IRS is also looking at structures um, new initiatives were announced even after we were doing a lot of the writing uh, for this chapter that are directly applicable to the management of the business of running a family office, uh, which harkens back to the professionalism that I've had mentioned early in the call. But that idea for professionalism, uh, to, for an active business, for businesses to be treated similar, you know, similarly situated businesses to be treated in a similar manner, and the compliance with the appropriate regulatory agency is applicable on the tax side as well. I just thought I'd expand that it's broad compliance and regulations. And I, I feel remiss because I didn't add this to the question list in advance, but in light of the more recent unfolding of this whole election, do you foresee other impacts that might be germane to just raise um, as it relates to setup and structure or compliance that, that might be questioned, brought into a new cycle in this coming year 
um, if, if Biden's officially elected, president-elect? From a compliance standpoint, so a more strictly compliance standpoint, you know, there were, uh, we were beginning to see as, as President Trump often touted sort of a, a relaxing of the regulatory landscape. Um, I don't think that will continue under Biden. Um, I think, I don't think it will necessarily get worse, but I don't mm -hmm. see, think we will see an emphasis on loosening up the regulatory um, requirements applicable to family offices. I mean, there, there was a proposal out recently uh, that would have, would have affected beneficial ownership reporting. They would have substantially increased the reporting threshold. Mm. Um, and the SEC has recently announced um, that they are abandoning that effort um, and they will leave the reporting threshold uh, where it currently is. Interesting. And Ivan or Certainly Bill, do you have any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, on the tax side, um, certainly it, it, it is on the Democratic uh, Party's agenda to to promote tax reform. And uh, with the current um, uh, split in the in the House and the Senate, uh, in terms of the parties, um, you know, that that may well be moderated. Um, but the uh, you know, there's, there's probably more likely some 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 change in tax reform uh, ahead, which you know will uh, certainly have implications for uh, family offices, like all you know um, financial structures. Um, so uh, there, we have to wait and see. Certainly, there's also um, some things um, on the agenda in terms of estate tax and gift tax reform, which which could you know have an implication for the way we structure family offices with you know strategic issues in mind in, in terms of multi-generational planning. I think that's exactly right. I'll expand on it briefly um, to um, underscore something I was saying earlier. The Trump administration um, directed Treasury or the Treasury Department under the Trump administration um, increased enforcement substantially and also recognized that compliance had fallen off, especially on uh, high and ultra high net worth um, families and the interconnectedness of, of, of entities um, within the family enterprise. Um, Biden has said that to pay for his caring economy, he wants to scrutinize a number of structures, including but not limited to uh, the qualified opportunity zones and other structures around real estate. Um, so that compliance, um, the emphasis on compliance is expected to continue. Um, and I think that's what we're going to see with this the, the potential change in administration is just that compliance will remain uh, a top focus for Treasury. I am so appreciative to have all three of you here today on today's brief window into the Complete Family Office Handbook Second Edition with hearing from our luminary attorneys from Withers Worldwide on Chapters 5 and Chapter 7. Um, to read more about setting up and structuring your family office, the, uh, the chapter is authored by Ivan Sachs of Bill Canvas. Please read Chapter 5. It's going to be really helpful. And to read more about compliancing and legal issues in the family office, David Gwynn's chapter, Chapter 7, is exceptional. I'm very grateful to have you all here today as your host, Kirby Rosbach, on the Tamron Learning Podcast. And we look forward to reading more work from all of you. Thanks again. Thank, Thank you. you, Kirby. Thanks, Kirby.